What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays jumpers, Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morantz, Joe Johnson's jaw wraps, of course. We've got Jays. We got him for days. Josh, how you doing? There's been a lot of sad things that have happened, so I want to start with something mm. happy. Please do. I don't know if this is the first time it ever occurred, but I am just going to beg every single Fox producer throughout Big East Conference play to make it mandatory we have a Shaka box every single Marquette game when Marquette's playing defense. <laughs> because I watched on at least two successive possessions, he slammed mm-hmm. the floor with his team and people started noticing. And so all of a sudden, a Shaka box appeared and it was just oh. him. And oh, it was absolutely glorious. It's one of the greatest things. I, it honestly made my day. That is it was, spectacular. It was so great. It was just him cheering his team on playing defense. And it didn't last very long, but I need more of it. Okay, so so Shaka Smart's included. Who are the other college basketball coaches that are worthy of their own box on the screen? There are a couple question. that come to mind. The first one that comes to mind is Dan Hurley. I think sure. Dan Hurley mm-hmm. deserves a... A, a a a Hurley box. Sure. Uh, Fran McCaffrey. Mm, that's a good one. Fran McCaffrey, I think, deserves his own box. Kind of, kind of in the same Dan Hurley vein of it's, it it's all just kind of raw emotion mm-hmm. and just facial expressions, right? And, you know, just right. pure energy and intensity, mm-hmm. <laughs> bordering on the anger sometimes, especially with uh, Fran McCaffrey in the Iowa game or the Wisconsin mm-hmm. game. Uh, that would be one that would come to mind. Tom Izzo's responses to when his team does stupid stuff sometimes. Mm. That would be harder to capture in a box, though, because he doesn't give you the same kind of... He's not as animated. Right. It's just specific moments that are better on kind of, you know, cutaways and replays and stuff like that. Right. Uh, who else? hmm <laughs> I don't know. Those are the ones that come to my head immediately. Maybe um, Eric Musselman. Okay, the must bus. There, there are some easy graphics there. Maybe we just do yeah. it for the graphics. Just the must right. bus. Just put him on just, the bus. Yeah, yeah. Just have yeah. him on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I think those are. I think those are the ones that come to my mind immediately. Is Bobby Hurley as animated as his brother is? I feel like, and I read a whole article about this, that Bobby Hurley has really tried to control himself a little bit more. Interesting. So I don't know he would be as, I think you'd still probably get a a decent entertainment value out of it, but I think it would have been better three, four years ago. I think you're probably right. Yes, Arizona is way too much not enough of a train wreck for him to be as fun in the... In right. his box. I'm still not really sure how to feel about uh, feel about his his Arizona State Sun Devils, but um, <laughs> but that's a different that's a different conversation. But uh, yes, I I'm we just need to to plant a graphic. ESPN needs to develop one. Fox yep. has developed one. Um, the Big East Digital Network needs to develop one. Like, and, and any time he is like interviewed on TV, just like bring the same box back. It's just the Shaka box. <laughs> There's also just Shaka box r- rolls off the tongue too. It's beautiful mm-hmm. in in a very real way. Um, Jay's for this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's a Monday. We've got plenty to talk about, and this was just going to be a a conversation about games over the weekend, winners and losers, like like many things. Um, but the the news of the morning surrounding the U- university of texas and their men's basketball coach chris beard has thrown a wrench in those plans and we'll get to that here momentarily but it is a monday um it's 107 in the afternoon we do have a new ap top 25 um purdue returning to the top 25 the very tippity top of the top 25 for the second year in a row virginia yukon alabama and houston rounding out the top five we have a new top five we have a monday morning and that means that we can do nothing but do winners and losers at the top of the pod. So, Mr. Dorn, the team that you thought did the most for their what, whatever, whatever you're prioritizing this week, um, who is your winner this week? Wisconsin. 
That's correct. That's my answer, too. Good job. We got it right. Well done. <laughs> yeah, you go back to, I know this doesn't technically count, but you started last weekend with a win at Marquette. You beat Take Maryland. The then you win at Iowa. Now, mm-hmm. yes, two of those games went to overtime. They also should have just closed the door on Iowa in regulation and let Iowa find a way to get that game to overtime. I'm still not entirely sure how that happened. And got off to a bad start at the first couple of possessions of overtime, but recovered to get the win. Two Big Ten wins. You've got seven guys who in these two games were reliable contributors, scoring, you know, multiple baskets, doing really good, valuable things for your basketball team. Tower Wall was really good against Iowa. It's just Wisconsin being Wisconsin and being better than they look on paper once again. I don't really have too much in-depth about this other than look at where they are in the Big Ten, look at the overall record, the wins they just picked up, the week those – I mean, I was ready to make Iowa my winner if Iowa had won this game because they're looking – I mean – they're not haven't had they blew out Iowa State, but obviously, you know, you had the loss to Duke before that. But they're doing this without Chris Murray right now. And they're still looking very good. And Wisconsin found a way to win that game on the road in the Big Ten. So mm-hmm. these wins are just gonna get better, I feel like. Maybe the Maryland one, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But really, really good week for Wisconsin, and they're right there in the thick of the Big Ten race once again. Yeah. Uh, and it feels like for the umpteenth year in a row, they're off to a good start in the Big Ten. in the Big Ten. And, you know, I was looking, I was going to, I was trying to get to the idea of Wisconsin just got a a tough road win. They played two good Big Ten teams. And I went and looked at the schedule and was like, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really let up at all. Because the Big Ten, you know, we talked so much about how the Big Ten was going to be down this year. And here I am on December 12th for as long as we've been doing this podcast, thinking about how tough the Big Ten slate is. Um, 22nd in this week's AP poll, Greg Gard continues to be a coach worthy of being talked about as one of the best in the country in terms of getting more from his from his team than seems to be the sum of his parts. Um, he's got to be high up on that list. Tyler Wall is that veteran frontcourt player that you expect to come out of Madison at this point. Chucky Hepburn certainly isn't Johnny Davis, but from a being willing to have the volume and shooting it well perspective, he kind of has taken a step in the Johnny Davis direction, if you will. Um, He and Connor Asegian, Asegian, do you know how to pronounce his name? I think it's Asegian. Asegian. I was thinking about that. I heard it and then I, it just never sticks with me. I apologize, Connor. Um, I meant to go look before the pod started and forgot to. Um, they're both shooting 46% from the three-point line, unlike lots of three-point attempts, too. So um, they're just really tough again. They they play defense. They have the same offensive limitations that it seems like every Wisconsin team has, but they play good enough offense and have guys that you can depend on offensively, and they guard the heck out of it that they're just going to be really, really tough in the Big Ten. For whoever whoever ends up winning this conference, Wisconsin looks like a team that is going to make them win a considerable amount of games to actually get it done. So they are my winner as well as a team that, you know, there were a lot of teams that had a really good win and then maybe had a loss or only had yep. one good win and only played once this week. Wisconsin played two good teams, beat them both, and... Uh, one of them being on the road. So they are my winner as well. Who is your loser? Maryland's offense. Maryland's offense. You know, we're really boring this week because Maryland is my loser. <laughs> I, I don't even want to make Maryland the team my loser. Just the offense. And I went back and really sort of dove into this for a second. So let me lay out some things for you and then you can give your thoughts as well. Please do. They scored at least 71 points. Now, there were a lot of low 70s in there, but at least 71 points in their eight wins. They then proceeded to not reach 60 in these two losses. The first seven wins they had came against teams who are currently outside the top 100 in defensive efficiency. Now, they did get to 71 in the win against Illinois. They did so while shooting 39% from three, nine of 23. And they got... 71 points. 
Then you play two of the better defenses in the country, arguably the very best in Tennessee, depending on what metric or who you're asking. Three made field goals in the first half, 17 points in the first half. Now, I know they were really good in the second half and very easily could have won this game. Not just made it interesting, but got themselves right back to, you know, it's a possession either way. Whoever made the plays down the stretch was going to win, and Tennessee happened to make those plays. And Jameer Young has been outstanding and continues to be outstanding. Just from a... What is this team actually going to end up being, and can they build off of this really good start they had? I just looked at all of this, and they're not scoring 60 points against the really good defensive teams. And now, I expect them to be able to score 70 against a decent amount of the Big Ten teams because they are not as good defensively as Wisconsin and Tennessee are, right? Those are two of the best defensive teams in the country. But from a from a ceiling perspective of what can Maryland be, because I'm convinced they're an NCAA tournament team. To me, that's not a discussion anymore. They're going to win a lot of games. But can they actually get to a point where they really are a top 15 team in the country, you know, talking about maybe getting to a sweet 16, that kind of thing? It just is really painful sometimes offensively. And if they generally they have been a good three point shooting team, but if they don't shoot the ball well, you're just going to see more of these games, I think. And I'm just going to be skeptical of where you can go when it's that difficult to actually put points on the board sometimes. And you made three field goals and a half. I don't care who you're going up against. Honestly, I'm going to push back a little bit with your own point that Tennessee and Wisconsin are two of the best defensive teams in the country. And to be, and to be frank, like they they hadn't played a truly a, a truly elite defense yet. And no, they hadn't played. A, yeah, they hadn't played a good one until Illinois. Yeah, um, we got like they're my loser because they were seven points away from being a top seven team this week. That's mm-hmm. why they're my loser. Um, I. Y- there's part of me that is on board with with what you're saying. And there's another part of me that, you know, you it's Kevin Willard in this first year with this basketball team, and you went and played Greg Gard and Rick Barnes, who have been making a living on offensively limited basketball, you know, <laughs> teams with offensive limitations mm-hmm. but elite defenses for ever now. Yeah. Um and 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 to your like I'm looking at the I'm looking at their their schedule. And like Indiana's probably in a similar spot in terms of quality of defense to those two teams. But that's it. There there really isn't that many more. So maybe I, I think we'll look up at the end of the year and Wisconsin and Tennessee will be. I mean, Tennessee is Tennessee might be the number one te- defense in the country they are at Kimpom. Um, and Wisconsin is the fourteenth thir- team in the country at Kempom. Um, like I think we might look. At, I think we might get to the end of the year, and those two teams are like both in the top five. So while while my ears have perked up, so to speak, about whether or not Maryland can score against good defenses, they did put up seventy one against a good against a quality Illinois defense. And I think their defense is good enough that 71 points, you know, high 60s, low 70s on most nights is going to get the job done. Oh, for sure. But, but um, that was that, you know, that was more. This was much more about. Maryland was really close for at least for me, Maryland was really close to going on a streak where they beat Illinois, Wisconsin and Tennessee in consecutive games. And the other part is that just neither of those games were on at home, which is, I think, at least worthy of consideration. But it is at least a question that you're asking heading into Big Ten play is how consistently can they score enough points to 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 win, you know, 12 Big Ten games. Right. Because that's what we're talking about. Because I'm going to be stunned if they win less than 10. Me too. Exactly like you 
for the exact reason you said. It's not like you're seeing these defenses every night in the Big Ten. They are simply better than most teams in that conference. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is about, okay, are they team, you know, four, five, six, or are they going to insert themselves in the conversation with Purdue, hypothetically IU, maybe Wisconsin, mm-hmm. whoever emerges as the top of the conference, right? Are they a tier one team or a tier two team? Mm-hmm. And so the other thing I'll throw sure. out there in terms of, yeah, they this is ultimately why they were my loser because they were that, I mean, now you could also spin it and say, well, if they wouldn't, you know, they had to dig themselves out of a massive hole because they only scored 17 points in the first half against Tennessee. Sure. My thing is, I'm just worried how many things have to go right to score the kind of points you need to against the best teams in the country because they needed the three-pointer to be falling at a 40% rate to get to 71 against Illinois and needed to do what they're capable of defensively, which by and large they have because I'm with you. They're also a really good defensive team. And you needed, right, it's just this idea of, okay, if if you're okay offensively and what you expect defensively, you need something else to kind of, to catch some kind of break to be able to beat the Tennessees and, and Wisconsin's of the world because there are so many different check boxes you have to check off because of your offensive limitations. Sure. Sure. I also just, you know, in this last thing I'll say, I just don't think they're as good as Tennessee. So then losing by three to Tennessee is not something I'm all that concerned about. And I don't think they're as good as Wisconsin at home. Like if they could play play that game in college park, like Maryland, like I I think of those teams very similarly, but um, yeah, when you're 263rd in the country in three point field goal percentage, your limitations are just, you know, they're outside the top 230 in tempo and outside the top 260 in three-point field goal percentage. It doesn't matter what else you do really well. Your limitation, your your margin of error is inherently smaller as a result. And maybe that's just the reality that, that Kevin Willard and his team will live in this year, yeah. which and is fine. Admittedly, I thought they were shooting the ball better than that. So that emphasizes 30, my point even more. 31% as a 31% as a team, 263rd in the country. But they defend the three-point line really well. 27% opponents are shooting. Um, yeah, they've been outstanding defensively. Yeah, It's just a, this is what, right, to me, this was just kind of a, this is what could have been. Mm-hmm. Could they could they actually prove themselves to be a top 15 team in the country, not a team that just showed up there because they won the games they were supposed to and got a good win against Illinois, right? They kind of shot up the rankings because, well, there's no hole to poke in the resume. They actually beat a good opponent in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Then you're facing, and I certainly did not expect them to win all of these games in this brutal stretch they're in the midst of. I'm not worried about them at all. I just wanted to see what do they look like against the best teams in the country, and I've just come to the conclusion they're more of a top 20, 25 team than a top 15 team that might make a real run of the Big Ten title, which is still an incredible testament to where this team is compared to where they were expected to be. It just sort of came crash the the hopes of Maryland being even better came crashing down for me this week. And quite frankly, there just wasn't another team I felt comfortable making a loser because I didn't really want to do this to Maryland, which mm. is why I just singled out the offense. Fair. Um and I was I was never convinced that Maryland was a top fifteen yeah, team. So I wasn't so maybe either. so maybe that's that that is some of the, the difference as well. Um winners and losers every Monday morning. Um teams that put themselves in a good position, teams that maybe didn't do that or got really close to doing it, and it wasn't a great week for losers in general. Um, I suppose the elephant in the room is that the University of Texas men's basketball program is probably the biggest loser here at this point. Um, Early this morning, this morning being Monday, December 12th, Texas men's basketball coach Chris Beard was arrested Monday morning on a felony domestic violence charge. Um, As of right now, and Dana O'Neill tweeted this not all that long ago. We're recording at one twenty-two in the afternoon. Um, and she tweeted not all that long ago that she spoke to the Travis County jail where Beard is currently going through the booking process. And he is still in jail as of, as of this point. Um, says he was booked at 418 on a third degree charge of quote, assault of a family slash household member impede breath circulation or strangulation. Um, man, you know, and, and of course we'll see how this unfolds and what kind of 
you know, how the investigation unfolds and where we go from here. But, but Josh, this is not the type of thing that people are arrested for that is just kind of out of thin air. Of course, like Chris Beard's representation has come out and been like, this is ludicrous. This is so ridiculous. But then literally everybody's representation comes out and says that when they are arrested or charged or there are rumors or whatever it might be. Um, But wow. Like I, that is like, there is, It's it's scary to hear somebody is capable of something like attempting to strangle somebody, and I right of course we don't know at like at how at what point like if someone passed out because they had been held in a chokehold for so long or what it might have been, but third degree charge of a, of assault and impeding breath circulation is a really, really striking thing to read. And one that is like, that is, that is scary. That is really, really bad. What, um, what, what say you, what, what are your thoughts? Um, kind of gut check reactions to the news we got around the Texas men's basketball head coach this morning. Yeah. I mean, we got to let this process play out, let the investigation play out. Like you, said it, i refuse to speculate on these kind of things mm, so it's all qualified with if this is actually true and an accurate representation of what happened mm-hmm. and you know you kind of half jokingly said the real loser is texas and to me the real loser is chris beard not not only because obviously chris beard is the person charged with harming another human being and that's mm. not okay mm. there was a victim here but texas basketball is gonna be fine Regardless of, you're going to have to handle the consequences of this happening to your head coach. Mm -hmm. But this was the number two team in the, you know, Chris Beard's made a final four. He had Texas at number two in the country. I don't, I don't see, again, if this is true, I don't see how he keeps this job and I don't really see how he gets another one. And maybe that's just the gut reaction and, there's always somebody who's willing to give somebody a second chance and to a certain degree, I don't want to say dismiss, so I'll use overlook things like this. But also a lot of those situations aren't this. Mm. To your other point about this is just a a very striking description of a felony crime that Chris Beard is charged with. Right. So I... I mean, I don't see how he can return to the sidelines unless somehow this gets dismissed and sorted out in a way that I don't I don't even know what the the words are, but that absolves him of or suggests that he's innocent of this. Mm-hmm. It, it it would be unacceptable for this man to be allowed backgrounds people that he has massive influence over if this is true um now granted you and i know as well as anybody the lack of ethics and morality that's in college athletics right um but paying a kid to come to your school and assaulting a family member is um is two very very different things and And if if he is if he is like the very if if it's true, the very idea that he's capable of it should mean he should never ever 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 and never ever ever be put in a situation as a coach because those situations like sometimes those are stressful and clearly if he's capable of that then he's also capable of physically at least at the very least putting his hands on a player and and you know i you know i i'm curious you know it makes me 
it makes me wonder things like what is Chris Beard like behind closed doors in his own program? What is Chris Beard like in practice? What is Chris Beard like in the locker room at halftime when his team has kind of dragged their feet for the first 20 minutes? Um, all of these questions that like, I would like to think that there haven't been warning signs about this kind of thing in and around his program, but also it wouldn't stun me because he's a final four coach, like you said, and a guy who now has his his basketball program at number two in the country. So it wouldn't exactly stun me if those things had been overlooked, but it is there. He should never be allowed to coach ever again. If these things are true, like shouldn't be allowed, like not, not, not athletic directors should have the the ethics to not hire him. Like he should just not be allowed to if these things are true. There's no place for that for that kind of person in in college athletics. There's just not. And this is also one of those things where it's it's possible it happened just one time. But that's another important part of this that you were kind of illustrating there that I want to add to is I I guess I'm skeptical that something like that kind that kind of outrage and physical response to anger was a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. Now maybe it never demonstrated itself in that kind of serious that serious of a situation that harmful of a way before. But the anger management side of this is also a concern for me and I hope Chris Beard gets whatever happens that Chris Beard Beard gets the help it appears he needs mm-hmm. in terms of just being able to move forward with his life and being able to treat people the way they deserve to be treated, whatever this all ends up looking like. But that's that's the other question I have for this is what even if there weren't, you know, actual warning signs in terms of him demonstrating this specific kind of behavior, but like you said, what what is Chris Beard like on a day-to-day basis? How are you going to be able to convince yourself if you do somehow want to hire him? This isn't going to happen again. And is if somebody is to hire him, assuming he is no longer Texas's coach at some point down the road, mm-hmm. what kind of due diligence did you do? And this is where I think a lot of times athletics and sports come up short in terms of hiring process. What kind of due diligence did you do to figure out what other kind of things have transpired outside of this? Because it's easy to just dismiss this as as serious and horrific as it is, right? There is a way to just say this was one awful situation, Mm -hmm. get therapy, counseling, whatever it might be, and present it as Chris Beard is in a much better place and something like this won't happen again. How confident can you actually be in that without doing the due diligence of talking to player, you know, players, people around the programs he's run, family members, friends, the entire encompass of Chris Beard as a person and as a basketball coach, not just at Texas, not just as Texas Tech, but even before that. Mm. To actually get a full more complete idea of what this story looks like and the things that might have led to this awful situation. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see kind of what comes of this in the coming weeks, the coming months. But like, then the other part of this is, is this is an issue, not, this is an issue that supersedes college basketball in terms of what the next like 10 years of Chris Beard's life looks like if he is found guilty of these things like we're like we're not just talking about not seeing Chris Beard on the college on college basketball sidelines for a while like Mm -hmm. like like these are charges that push a decade in jail that's a felony yeah yeah we're we're talking about serious we're talking about serious time in prison if if these things so you know if you you don't have to look any farther than that to understand the severity of the conversation like a, a, like we can 
in the scope of college basketball, make things bigger than they actually are sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you broke the rules by paying your, your recruits family a thousand dollars, but outside of breaking that NCAA rule. And of course we had all the FBI stuff. So, you know, there's a line, but if you pay a, a recruit a thousand dollars, it's against the rules, but ultimately like, that's not that much money that changed hands and outside of the college basketball world doesn't have all that much of an impact. This is the kind of thing that goes far beyond in terms of punishment and, and just impact Then it goes f- much further than, than college hoops. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes, wh- where it goes from here. Any, any last thoughts on this before we talk uh, some things that happened on the floor the last few days? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point to, of course, we're talking about in the context of college basketball because we don't have much information at this point. This is still all playing out. And obviously, this is a college basketball podcast, and Chris Beard is one of the most highly regarded coaches in the country. But you're you're absolutely right. And that's kind of where I started with the the loser in this is Chris Beard, not just because of – and I sort of took it down the angle of Chris Beard's coaching career. The implication I was trying to get at there is exactly what you said, that this is about Chris Beard, the person in his future mm-hmm. more than anything else, because this is not right. This is not just a basketball issue. This is not just a legal situation that's going to impact college basketball. This is a potentially, well, I would argue in any way, shape or form, a life-changing situation, but right. Like you said, if, if this actually turns out and ends up in a guilty verdict and those kind of things, this is completely changing the course of Chris Beard's life outside of basketball. Exactly. Exactly. So we will, we'll monitor the situation see what comes out in the, uh, in the, in, in the weeks, months, days, that's not the right order. Days, weeks, and months ahead when it comes to that situation, Texas plays tonight. You know, they, this is, it's also not, you know, May 27th that this mm-hmm. is happening. This is, on the doorstep of Big 12 basketball and, and and conference play. So we'll see how the program, to to kind of compartmentalize the two, how the program reacts on the floor administratively, all of those, all of those things. Because he's probably not returning to the sideline anytime soon, right? Even if even if he does end up being declared you know, not guilty of these things that he's being charged for. He, I mean, he's probably not going back to the, to the Texas sidelines anytime soon. So compartmentalizing those two things, how does that impact the rest of a team that the season of a team that is, um, I suppose no longer second in the country because of the new AP poll. Um, but I think sixth, maybe seventh, seventh. Um, so we shall see. We shall see. Um, on the floor this weekend, Josh, um, to to kind of move closer to some of the things that we're planning on talking about this week. Um, Alabama beating Houston for the second straight year, 71-65. Um, Josh, Houston was up 44-29 to with 16-30 left in this game, and yeah. the Tide went on a 42-21 to run over the, t- over the what we thought could be the best team in the country over the last 16-30 to win this game 71 71- to 65 they've now beaten unc in houston already now unc when they beat them they had already lost that week they were on their way out as the number one team in the country but they were still the number one team in the country when that loss happened uh, sorry when that win happened for alabama now they beat houston they're nine and one excuse me eight one at on the season they moved into the top five of the ap poll i think fourth right ahead of houston and um, Nate Oates is rolling again in Tuscaloosa. What say you about what we saw um, at Houston, by the way, mm-hmm. on um, on Saturday? Yeah, I think this was the first top 10 matchup Houston ever had at home. I might be have gotten that wrong. I think they said something like that on the broadcast. Uh, I, like you, thought this game was over. <laughs> yeah. And was very much ready to talk about this in a very different context. Mm -hmm. And then Alabama rolled with the freshman 
spread the floor. And Houston just couldn't deal with it, which is one of the, the interesting tactical things coming away from this for me because you know, we talked about Alabama and you know – one of the things I love about Nate Oates in Alabama is they're so easy to analyze because you just know what the story is because of how many three-pointers they shoot regardless of whether they make them or not, <laughs> right? It's They're going to live and die by the three. So I was much more interested in this from a Houston standpoint and kind of what went wrong. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that stood out was just what happened when that floor got spaced, when they took Bediaco out. Because it was a bunch of guys getting into the paint. It was guys passing the ball then back out after the defensive collapse or collapse or open three-pointers. Of course, Alabama shot the ball well in this game. But that was a really... Because there were other times, I mean, the entire first half, where Alabama just could not do anything offensively and were turning the ball over every other possession. Now, they were right. getting good looks when they actually got a shot up, but they were turning the ball over left and right. And then all of a sudden, they took Betty, you know, they took Bediaco out. They started taking care of the basketball. Maybe that was just because life got made easier because Houston. It's much more difficult to trap, right, when the when the floor is spaced and you don't have a limited, you know, five feet from the basket big like Bediaco, who's also not known for his offensive ability out there. It makes life easier to be able to double team and things like that from a defensive perspective. Mm -hmm. So you took that option from Houston away, and all of a sudden there was just no bite to that defense, and Alabama had their way. The other thing and I've got some more thoughts I'll save and we can kind of go back and forth here the other thing I wanted to point out from an Alabama standpoint I don't think people were paying enough attention now I know Brandon Miller was 0-8 from the field in this game this was not about Brandon Miller but I I believe I said on the SEC preview pod that Brandon Miller could end up being the best freshman in the country or at least have the best you know stats of any freshman in the country I feel like he got a little lost in this freshman discussion because of the role he was going to play for this team but all 10 guys who saw the floor for Alabama we're talking a season where we're talking about lack of depth did really really good things and contributed in multiple ways scoring rebounding defense and that entire freshman class, all of the good freshmen that Alabama had were true. Brandon Miller had a tough day shooting, but even he was contributing defensively. He knocked down a bunch of free throws, those mm -hmm. kind of things. But the other freshmen were outstanding in this game. This is an incredibly deep team that if they can sort of, you know, as Javon Quinterly continues to get healthier and healthier and work his way back, if they can kind of figure out how to put all these pieces together and be a little bit more consistent than last season, they've got an awful lot of talent. Yeah, you know, and at the same time, this is a game they won last year. Right. And um, them going 7 of 23 from the floor, only shooting 64 62% from the free throw line, turning it over 15 times and still finding a way to win this game is encouraging, um, right? Because we've talked, it seems like we talked about it the last couple of years, that Alabama is going to play fast and loose. And when they make their threes, they can beat anybody. They didn't make their threes in this game, not really. And they still found a way to win this game. Um, I I might be out on Houston as a national title contender. And 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 here's why. Um, they have probably the best guard in the country. I mean, he's on the short list of nothing else. Who's who? who uh, other than Marcus Sasser, like you know, the list of the best guards in the country is. I mean, you can throw some of those Baylor guys on there if you want to. Yeah. Um, but, Mike Miles, but like, who hasn't had a spectacular season. Right. I mean, it, it's not it, – it's the year of the bigs. And yeah. as much as good as the bigs are, like, there also just aren't that many. Kendrick Davis, we are we are on – yep. we are. it is December 12th, and I do not feel bad about the fact that I put Kendrick Davis on my first team All-America. They beat Auburn yesterday, and he had 29 points – or two days mm -hmm. ago, and he had 29. Uh, and aside – um, here are the here are here are Houston's point totals against 
against the three best teams at Kempom that they've played. Okay. Um, Oregon, they scored 66 points against an Oregon team that is 58th in the country at Kempom defensively. 58 points. Sorry, 66, 66 points. Um, throw Kent State in there, 49 points. They failed to get to 50 points against Kent State. Um, St. Mary's, they beat 53 to 48. Um, St. Mary's is a good defense. That's a top 10 Kempom defense. So, you know, make it that what you will. Um, and then against Alabama, 65 points. They were 39% from the field, 25 of 64, 3 of 13 from the three-point line. They shot just 54, 54% from the charity stripe. Um, Marcus Sasser was 2 and 11. Jamal Sheed had 19, but it took him 20 shots to get there. Um, this team right now is not anywhere good enough offensively to win a national championship. And, and they're going to win a lot of games. They're, you know, they're supposed to play Virginia on Saturday. That'll be fun to watch, but well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, in a very Virginia versus Houston way. Sure. Yes. Oh, it'll be, it'll, it'll be fascinating. I was just yeah, joking. I mean, that thing, <laughs> might, that thing might end up, you know, we've had some 43, 42s. That might be a 40, um, 39. Um, I'm not, I'm not here to, I'm not standing here for you to slander the 11th best team at Kempom offensively. No, in that's fair. In Virginia. That's fair. Virginia that's scored very... 70, yes. Virginia scored 73, 89, 86, <laughs> 70, 72, 70, and then 62. They had 50, they had a very James, they had a very, very Virginia win against James Madison and a 55 yeah. to 50, but James Madison is good this year. They've proven that on multiple occasions that, that JMU is bringing it this year. Um. Anyways, they're they're not supposed. That's the they're supposed to lose that game. That was the point I was getting to. They're not supposed to lose any other game the rest of the season. They're going to win a ton of games. They're going to probably be a top two seed in the tournament because they win so many games. But they are not even with the best guard in the country. They are not good enough offensively right now to to win a national championship. They're just not and. When and to your point, the thing you so you, you so nicely laid out in the second half, it was pretty obvious that when their defense isn't clicking on all cylinders, right? This is still the number two defense in the country. We're not here to say that Houston's defense isn't good. Nobody is saying that Houston's defense isn't good. But what we did see in very Virginia of the late 2010 save their national championship year fashion when their defense isn't elite, even if it's for a stretch of 16 minutes and 30 seconds, they are going to really, really struggle to keep up, right? They only lost the game by six. It was tied up with under two minutes left, but they got outscored in the last 16 minutes by 21 points. They got doubled up. And, and I like, like just being susceptible to that is concerning. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe it becomes a one-off, but when you look at the schedule and their, when you look at their record and performances so far, they've been pretty consistently underwhelming against the best teams that they've played when it comes to the offensive end of the of the court. And right, like I said, they're going to win a lot of games. They're going to be in the conversation, but until they show me something more offensively against a good team and specifically a good team that plays good defense, because that's what you're going to have to do to win a national championship. You're going to have to play good offense against a team that plays good defense. And they haven't shown that they can do that yet. And when they do, I'll feel differently gladly. But until then, I am I am skeptical about Houston's ability to win six games in the tournament. And with that being said, they 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 seem to get to the Final Four at least really close, pretty, pretty darn consistently. Um, and it's not like we're talking about a team that was clicking on all cylinders offensively the last few years. So, so maybe they'll just do it anyways, but I I'll never be confident in a team that is susceptible to, to some of these things that they, that they, that has turned into a trend um, in the first 10 games of the season. I want to hone on two specific things to that point. Hit me. One, the difference between this Houston defense and Virginia's defense is that this Houston defense is a turnover generating machine. Mm hmm which is how they scored so many points in the first half, right? It was getting into passing lanes, knocking the ball loose, making players throw terrible cross-court passes, coming at the Alabama just couldn't deal with getting trapped. 
there was just an incredible level of intensity and it led to a bunch of turnovers that also led to some runouts and easy buckets. When you don't have those easy buckets, that is part of Houston's offensive strategy in a way that I would argue it hasn't necessarily been part of Virginia's. Of course, they'll get one here or there, right? But they're just more, we're going to make you actually get a find a way to get a good shot and guard you for the entire shot clock mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to be super aggressive defensively to force turnovers. It's much more fundamentally sound, stay between you and the basket, keep you out of the middle of the lane, things like that. So you throw that where defense is part of Houston's offense and you combine that with, I love Jamal Shedd. Jamal Shedd is one of my favorite players in the country. Shedd, my bad. Not yeah. Shedd, Shedd. My it bad. looks it. <laughs> He is more than capable of going and scoring 15 to 20 points. I know he doesn't do it consistently, but it seems like every time I watch him, he finds a way to get to 15 against the good teams they play. That is not I'd rather, what I'd rather you get to nine on four shots for, for the record. Sure. That is not what he does, though. Mm. In those three games you mentioned, well, I took out Kent State, Oregon, St. Mary's, and Alabama. Jamal Shedd has 10 total assists. If you look at the rest of those box scores, he's getting somewhere between 5 and 10 a game. Per game. He had 10 in the three three of the best teams Houston played. That is what he does. Because then Marcus Sasser goes, goes and gives you 18, and all of a sudden your backcourt is looking really good with you know 24 points and 12 to 15 assists between them or whatever it might be. You're not scoring enough points with Jamal Shedd being your go-to offensive option, like he ended up being in this game because Marcus Sasser struggled and kind of got taken out of it by Alabama's defense. You need Mark, you need Jamal Shedd to be the one creating buckets for other players with his passing and making Marcus Sasser's life easier. I don't, so to me, there are the, those are the two ways to score is off of your defense and off, off of Marcus Sasser's individual brilliance. And when you don't have both of those things, you are in very, very big trouble. So that's something I want to monitor moving forward because I'm a big believer in the depth of this team. And I talked about it after the Oregon game where Marcus Sasser didn't see the floor all that much. And it was just fine because their freshmen were terrific. And Jamal Shedd was good in that game. But that's not a formula for success against, like you said, the best teams in the country and specifically the ones that are also elite defensively. Yeah. They also need to be much better cleaning out defensive rebounds. They are, they're a very good offensive rebounding team. They are not a good defensive rebounding team. They're almost equally as good of equally as bad of a, of a defensive rebounding team Uh, opposing defense. They are 224th in the country and allowing offensive rebounds. So I don't know if you looked, but that's that, um, that community, the the stats communicate that, um, that feeling. Um, they're pretty. They're they're elite defensively everywhere else, but um, when it comes to finishing defensive re- defensive possessions, they are they are certainly not the best. Um, Houston, right? That you get Virginia, and then you don't get another top twenty. You, you don't get another top sixty-five current Kempom team until you get Memphis on February nineteenth. You get them twice in the last two weeks of the season, but. Um, you know, so it might be a while. We might be just going into the tournament asking the same things mm-hmm. about Houston. Yep. And and maybe there are some teams in the W in the sorry, the AC the AAC that uh, emerge as more relevant teams nationally, but probably not. And we might just be looking at those those Memphis games at the end of the season to get an idea of where where we are with the Cougars. Um assuming there are no massive revelations when it comes to, to playing Virginia on Saturday. Um, Indiana flew all the way to Las Vegas. Arizona flew to Las Vegas on a much shorter flight. And those two teams played in what is so appropriately called because I mean, whoever ran the event just like couldn't come up with something better than the Las Vegas clash. So in Las Vegas, you'll be shocked to hear that they played the Las Vegas clash. Um, Arizona and Indiana, two top 14 teams at the time of the game. And that's actually remains the case. Arizona made a jump up to ninth. Uh, Indiana stayed put at 
14, which is incredibly fair for a team that did nothing that week, but lose to a top 10 team. It's almost like you don't have to drop teams for losing. So good job, AP poll, even if you didn't mean to do it. Um, and that's just kind of how it happened. Well done. Good job by you. Um, 89-75 Arizona. And, and Mike Woodson said this post game that this was the first team that really was able to do a lot of what they wanted to do offensively against mm-hmm. Indiana. Um, Indiana had not given up the most points Indiana had given up this year was 79 to Xavier on the road. Um, and that's, that's, that's a lot of points, but other than that, the most that a team had gotten was 65. So excuse me, 68. And that was against little rock, but, um, Arizona 89 of 75, uh, sorry, 89, 75 victory for Tommy Lloyd's team. Um, their interior, like it has been all year, they're the best two point field goal team in the country from a percentage perspective. And Umar Ballo and Azulas Tabellas were really, really good again, really, really efficient again. Um, Kirk Chris is on his way to being the most hated college basketball player in the country <laughs> because of his obscene confidence in a game where he was four of 12 from the field, but um. But it, it starts with that interior presence. We talked about it. They have five really, really good college basketball players. Um, right, the bench is there. It's not. It's just there. That's Seven, that's seventeen that's, points in this game, though. Seventeen points in this game. They were they were they were pretty good in this game. Most of that came from Adama Ball, who was three of three from the three point line. <laughs> just but came in got, right. Just knocked out three threes. Yeah. But in but in theory. Right. in in a very basic math equation, those 17 points, they won by 14. So like in theory, right. Um, and, and they get a win 89-75. Go where you want to first when it comes to this basketball game and, and, you know, a really fun basketball game. I enjoyed watching this game a lot. And uh, Arizona kind of kept the Indiana at arm's length for a lot of the game. Indiana kept you know, clearly tough. There's no Jalen Hutchifino, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but uh, the, the Wildcats get a 14 point win. What say you? Yeah, you kind of hit on the main points I wanted to talk about, except for one that I'll mention here at the end. Indiana's just not winning that game when Trace Jackson Davis is the fourth best big on the floor. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that for me. Because Arizona dominated the interior, dominated points in the paint. You've got to find a way to bother Tabellas and Balo because they're ginormous human beings who can bother Trace Jackson Davis and make his life difficult. And again, not many teams in the country have a better one-two punch. I mean, that is probably the best front court in the country. Either and them or UConn. That's also that fair. The other, yes, that with the emergence the of Donovan I... Klingon, yes. Yeah, that dude is that dude's really good. Oh yeah, one of those. Yeah, one of those two. And maybe Zach Eady by himself. He might. <laughs> he just counts as two. He's, he's, he's just kind right. of. He's so tall. That he certain, can count as two. There's guys. certainly enough of him. There's yeah, certainly yeah. enough of him. Right. But it just that you're not winning that game. No. And I've been waiting for Race Thompson to make a real impact and he was really good i mean he knocked down i think it was three basically three consecutive threes maybe it was just two and he hit three out of four in a short stretch i don't remember exactly but all of a sudden he started knocking down threes and that was kind of when iu got back into the game and made it at least a little bit interesting they did shoot the three ball well which is a positive development that was the other thing Mm -hmm. i wanted to mention on another day that's more than enough but it is nowhere near enough when you allow that game to be dictated by Arizona's bigs and just can do nothing to stop them. Mm-hmm. That was really the only takeaway I had. It's not a huge deal. You lost what was essentially a road game to a really good team without one of your better offensive playmakers. And Trace Jackson Davis didn't have a good day. You're just not, you're just not winning. Here's here. Here a couple things here. Um, one like trace has trace typically struggles with front courts that yep. have a lot of size right that has been a consistent thing and because he refuses to shoot the basketball i don't know if refuses is the right word that might not be giving him enough credit he isn't a good shooter there you go um 
and at least hasn't developed it to the point where he just lives in the paint and has the entire time he's been in Bloomington, which is fine. He's been very good in Bloomington. Um, this is this team without Jalen Hutchfino is the same team that, that Indiana has been pushing out for a couple of years now, right? It's a team that when when it takes Trace Jackson Davis ten shots to get eleven points, it doesn't really matter what else happens. Mm-hmm. And, and right, Xavier Johnson didn't have a good game, and the the kind of the deciding stretch of this game was when Xavier Johnson was on the bench with foul trouble, and there was no Jalen Hutchfino to to kind of right the ship. Um, what we learned here is that Jalen Hutchfino is the most important part of this team to raising the ceiling of this basketball team. Because they're just they just have too many of the same limitations mm-hmm. when he's not on the floor. Right? You're really hoping Xavier Johnson is is a, a good decision maker and efficient. And right, he had eleven assists to two to two turnovers in this game. That the decision making was just fine, but he was three of thirteen from the field. Um race like like you should never expect sixteen points from Race Thompson. And they got it, and it's still and they shot 40% from the three-point line and still like even all of those things being really good and true uh couldn't couldn't get as close as they the as of course they they wanted to and could never quite get over the hump late in this basketball game um if you tell me Arizona scores 89 points and Indiana only loses by 14 I want to give at least a little credit there like yeah like last year, Indiana would not have scored 75 points. Um, right. Tamar Bates continues to play well off the bench, but it just, it completely raises the, the ceiling of this basketball team when Jalen Hutchfino is playing and hopefully he comes back. Um, he did like give it a go. I heard in like pregame shoot around warm ups, like went through a more intensive, um, shoot around than maybe you would otherwise to kind of test. I think it's a lower back issue. It I sounds, think that's what it is. It sounds right. I think, yeah. I think that's what it is. Um, so hopefully that means he's like, like we, we get to see him against Kansas. Like I use schedule doesn't get any, any easier, at least immediately. They have some cookie cutter, some, some cupcake, cupcake games to end the, the non-conference schedule, but not before they go to fog Allen on, on, on Saturday. But this team is good without without Jalen Hutchfino. This team is really good with Jalen Hutchfino, and we've we've and that's been made clear the last you know the last three games without him. Right? They they shot it really well. Trace Jackson Davis had a triple double against Nebraska, and they dusted them in Bloomington. But they just didn't have enough against Arizona, and you really saw it against Rutgers on the road when they just couldn't get anything going. Um, So hopefully he's back soon. But he's he's really really important to to Mike Woodson's team this year, and they're just not scoring eighty five points against high level opposition. You've got to have the defensive foundation, which is where what Mike Woodson says one hundred percent correct. Of you've got to find a way to, and again, this is not a good. This was a bad matchup for IU in a lot of ways because of that size on the interior and because of Trace Jackson Davis's physical limitations from a height perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's the other part of this too. It's right. Offensively, it wasn't a disaster by any means. You just don't have the offensive firepower, especially without Hood Shafino, you need to go give up 80 plus points. You've got to find a way to hold Arizona to 72, 75, 78 to have a chance of winning this game. And they just didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is... It, it, Indiana in a lot of ways is different this year. They're better than I, they, they clearly have a ceiling that is higher than I thought it was going to be. At least I think, um, depending on how you feel about the North Carolina win, maybe you don't feel the same way you or anybody. Um, but against a team like Arizona, if Trace Jackson Davis doesn't have a good game, you're probably going to lose it no matter what else happens. And that is, in a nutshell, kind of where they were last year as well, when he's really good. And that's the foundation for everything else against good basketball teams. Um, I think Hutchifino can mediate that a little bit. And and, may, and we'll see if that's the case uh, during Big Ten play. Yeah, I, I'm, 
I come away with this from this game the same way I felt after the UNC one. I just my opinion hasn't changed very much. They are clearly good. There are flaws. They need Huchifino back. I'm not worried. I don't think any less of them because they lost this game. I just didn't think they were, you know, a top five team in the country to begin with. Mm. Um, real quick. I, I, anything else on this game? No. Anything else on this game? You know, are you every we, every team we've talked about today, you just like, kind of look at the schedule and you're like, oh, right, they play a really awesome team on Saturday, <laughs> like all of them. Um, Tennessee plays Arizona on Saturday. UCLA plays Kentucky on Saturday. Um, Gonzaga plays Alabama on Saturday. Um, Houston plays Virginia on Saturday. Indiana plays Kansas on saturday and listen the the granddaddy of, of them all is uconn is here to play butler at hinkle field house on saturday go dogs anyways um uh all of that to say it's going to be a lot of fun on 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 saturday um i'm sure we'll get to those things later in the week as well but i was just like oh right they play uh they play tennessee coming up oh right they play tennessee on on december 17th because all of the good non-conference games were were brought to <laughs> We're about to one. We're about to one Saturday. But hey, we'll mm. take it. We'll take it. Um, anything else on that game? Anything else on anything that happened this week before we get out of here? I just want to take a minute to acknowledge the passing of Grant Wald just from a college basketball mm. perspective. Mm. Yes, he was soccer first and foremost, but he did get his start in college basketball and chose to move from basketball to soccer. Mm. And of course, the LeBron profile that was on the front of the sports illustrated that's one of the most most famous sports illustrated covers of all time just it seems like his body is on the way back kind of as we speak almost so hopefully it appears like an autopsy is scheduled here in the u.s so hopefully his family those close to him get the answers they deserve about Mm. what what happened but he you know, he did play a, a significant role in the college basketball world as well. And you know, so many college basketball media members knew him because of his time doing basketball at Sports Illustrated. So just wanted to acknowledge his tragic passing for a second. He is, you know, there are, there are, there are people that, that when they pass away that they're the reaction on Twitter the reaction on social media, the 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 sheer volume of people that that speak up to offer condolences or to tell stories is um is expected. And, you know, whether it's just because they are, you know, a supreme athlete or it, you know, a you know, a truly a legend from a household name perspective in the broadcast space, you know, thinking John Madden, thinking Bill Russell, like that kind of thing. And then there are people like Grant who for you know, right, for one reason or another, I I was blown away by by just how highly spoken of by everybody he 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 was spoken about. After his, I mean, I got I got seven or eight different Substack notifications from people writing tributes to Grant Wall because of how big of an impact he had on right. You know, like you said, there were college basketball people who were talking about how kind he was to them when they entered the space because he was college basketball at that point. Um, from being kind of the the leader of the hey, I I am going to talk about women's soccer and write about women's soccer in the exact same effort and intensity that I write about men's soccer. Um, and, and just hearing stories throughout the week and reading things that people had written and just tributes on social media. Um, the guy had an, had an unbelievable impact on the sport that he covered, um, but also just on the space of, of sports media globally but specifically in this country and um he will he will certainly be he will clearly and certainly be missed by lots of people for because of the impact he had well said thank you i believe that's all we have for today we'll be back at the end of next week um i suck i slept through our podcast time last week so that's why there was no thursday pod um that one is on me 
um, and really on my work schedule. You know what? I'm alleviating myself of all blame. It's my work schedule's fault. Um, but there will be a podcast on Thursday, actually, and uh, and we'll find something to talk about when the time comes. Or I suppose Thursday, Friday, end of the week. You know the deal. Um, and we will find something to talk about and see you at the end of the week. Please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod. YouTube, TikTok, just type in Jays for Days podcast. You will find bite-sized content, full-size content, um, king-size content, if you will, um, and uh, on those platforms as well. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. And we will see you later.